Hello and welcome to this very special Friday episode of The Debrief. I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm off to a rollicking good start abusing my brand new soundboard, courtesy of the call-in team. <laughs> this is not the theme song we'll be staying with. It is a preset on this keyboard, but I'm enjoying it nonetheless, feeling very much like Roz from Frasier. I hope you guys are going to enjoy this as much as I am. I'm in a really good mood today. I know that people are very upset about our most recent episode, but I am always happy to talk about something that is both polarizing and very, very low stakes, given the extreme nature of so much of politics and the discourse and the environment and all the terrible things. This is a quote unquote safe space for us to talk about something that doesn't matter at all today. The topic are the Beatles overrated? We had a conversation with friend of the pod, Trevor Bouillot of Champagne Sharks, which I know many of you know and love, and Leslie Lee the Third of Struggle Session Podcast, and they had some hot, hot takes that uh, were derived from the initial tweet by Leslie, which is since deleted, but basically very simply said, white people love the Beatles. It was a tweet. That launched a thousand retweets, counter tweets, sub tweets, uh, commentary underneath the video. And this is your opportunity to give us back a piece of your mind. Trevor will be joining us shortly to defend his position. But additionally, another friend of Bad Faith Podcast is here to give the rebuttal to the case that was made on the podcast. You know him from his fantastic Substack and his cultural commentary. It's Freddie DeBoer. Welcome, Freddie. Hi, sorry. This is both uh, the, not only the first time I've ever used call-in, but I think this is the second time I've ever held an iPhone before. So uh, <laughs> everyone will have to bear with me. Yeah. I, well, congratulations. Thanks. I will... I, I would say I, I'm more I more want to give like a recontextualization than necessarily a rebuttal, but I yeah but I I'd okay. love to uh, I thought that the pod was really interesting and uh, uh, I think it touches on a lot of things that are really kind of um, I mean you said that it's low stakes right and I think that the thing is is like mm-hmm. it should be and is not right now for a lot of people uh, these kind of questions so like mm-hmm. I'll I'll give you like an example. Uh, we, maybe a week or two ago, I was clicking around looking for something on Twitter and I found myself in a K-pop like hashtag or trending topic or something. And there was a guy who worked at Spotify, who I guess is very influential because he helps to sort of define like what the, the, you know, the hot or popular playlists are. The guy was leaving for another job Mm -hmm. and people were celebrating and they were calling him uh, a traitor and a deceiver. And they were saying that they were going to get revenge <laughs> and that um, karma was going to come for him. And I was like, wow, what did this guy do? So I started to investigate it. And it turned out that the source of their anger is that he does not follow BTS on Instagram. And, and that was what <laughs> produced all of that rage. And so like, I just think that we're in this weird place of sort of stan culture and so, like, I, I like the Beatles, um, and I think that they're that they have a, a unique sort of relationship to all this stuff. But like, 
you know, I'm not interested in like defending their honor because frankly, they don't need me to defend their honor. But what I do think is interesting is just the way that like um, these questions about what you like in pop culture have become stand-ins for political identity, for cultural identity, and just for self. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, so I think that's hits the nail on the head insofar as this was a podcast between three people who are were all fans. You know, they, no one said they didn't like the Beatles on this show. Mm-hmm. You know, I am not a an aficionada, if you will, of the Beatles. But, you know, like I mentioned on the pod, I bought the one album in high school and certainly have plenty of nostalgic, warm, good feelings about many Beatles songs. I think Trevor and Leslie both, you know, are more invested in our bigger fans of the Beatles than I am. But the initial, the initial tweet wasn't even a qualitative statement about the Beatles or their music. It was this idea that white people like the Beatles. And I think specifically the implication that other people don't, at least not to the same degree that seemed to set people off. And that was interesting to me for reasons that we've talked about on the podcast before, which is that I find it, I find these moments where as someone who tends to be in a kind of a subculture in America, the majority culture has a realization that the thing that they kind of perceive to be a hegemonic ideal is, isn't because so much of my experience is a presumption that what I presume to be an ideal isn't going to be broadly considered as such. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, um, we have that has sort of consistently we've consistently failed to do, I think is even people who are very, who self-identify as very progressive generally and socially and racially are not people who, I mean, one of the, I think one of the things that is just genuinely not possible for a white person to do is to locate themselves outside of, you know, not the, like the, the sort of, structures of racial inequality but just to locate themselves outside of like you know being the unracialized self you know what i'm saying like i say this to to people all the time but like Mm -hmm. um most of the time most of my day in my head i am not white in any meaningful sense because i don't think about it right like it's not I'm, i'm not being forced to confront it and so it's just you know, there are times when I'll say, oh, right, I am a a sort of a racialized person and I have this set of advantages and I sort of exist in this broader cultural milieu of race, but like then I can stop thinking about it and I can go about my day. And I think one of the things that, you know, if you look at like a book like um, Invisible Man, um, Ralph Ellison, like one of the biggest themes in that is that like, this is not an option that's available to black people or to, uh, to people of color generally in the sense that as you go about and operate in white society, the reminder that you are not white is omnipresent, right? And I think that that sort of intersects with the question of like, okay, you've got like the most popular band, you know, maybe of all time. Mm-hmm. And like that, that taste is so universalized that um, people can't s- sort of still see it as taste. And I, I'm, you know, I would be very annoyed were I not someone who liked the Beatles and I liked them very much. I don't really listen to them anymore because I kind of wore them out when I was a teenager, but um, I would be annoyed because anytime I said, Hey, I don't like the Beatles, people would assume that I was trolling or something, right? Like my opinion Mm -hmm. would always be read through 
the lens of other people's you know, dominant mass opinion. And I think that that's the same thing. Uh, that's not the same thing, obviously, but that is related in some ways to the, you know, to the experience of, um, uh, of being like a racialized subject where uh, anything that you do is be seen as being like a commentary on your racial identity in a way that's just not true for me as a white person. Yeah, I think that, I think that's exactly right. I think that, well, Leslie's, Leslie, Leslie's tweet sort of um, essentialized white people, <laughs> for, you know, you know, for lack of a better term, in a way that we are very used to be being essentialized, but white people, as a group, white people quotation marks aren't typically. And I think there is something that you know he's being cheeky, but there's something almost a little cathartic from the minority group perspective about engaging in that sort of play. You know, telling white people about themselves is like a real cornerstone of like black comedy. You know, white people would be like this and black people would be like this. You know, it's like the most basic kind of comedy routine. But the reaction to it, you know, reveals the extent to which it is very infrequent, I think, for white people to find themselves in that position. And I think it's healthy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a healthy but I also, experience. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's, but it's interesting because I think like for a lot of like progressive white people, being able to be in on the joke about white people at white people's expenses is like a point of pride or something like, you know, mm -hmm. the, a lot of white people like me, for example, you know, want people to know, Hey, I'm cool with it. If you make fun of white people, I'm not offended. Right. Um, and I think that mm -hmm. a lot of the people who didn't like that tweet would never have reacted similarly if it was just like a goof on white people, because like, they know that that's something that like, savvy and progressive people like are cool with you know sort of sort of ribbing jokes like you know cheeky jokes at, at white people's expense but this just gets back to you know i've written about this many times is that like um it seems like a lot of people feel compelled to sort of create identity out of the stuff that they like um which leads to things like the stand culture um, you know, they sort of assemble a self out of their, uh, like, these are the movies I like, the movies I don't like, here's the music that I listen to, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think you can say an awful lot about where that comes from and, like, you know, collapses, the collapse in, like, traditional meaning and people don't have, uh, you know, we've really ironized the idea of identifying with your job, but then what's left, et cetera, et cetera. But what I always tell people is it's just like, you know, it's never going to feel like a stable sort of uh, and satisfying identity just to be like, I am a Beatles fan. Right. Like that's not actually the basis of, um, of like a, a, a secure and happy identity. Um, well, is that new Freddie? I mean, you talk as though it's replacing well, yeah. something else and you have these conversations about, Oh, we used to have religion and family identity and all these other kinds of identity, but replacing something old doesn't necessarily mean Ron a downward trajectory isn't it just the case that maybe now we talk about our fandom of anime or whatever and we used to just really love being catholic and before that we really loved being french or whatever you were before and on and on and on back and back we just are we enjoy factions and we we enjoy having some kind of constructed identity for ourselves outside of ourselves because it's just an easier way to process and negotiate the world yeah i i will here's what i will say that where i think some of this stems from, which is that so many of our fundamental um, relationships now are entirely online that, um, 
you know, if I go to a place where other people are and I'm interacting with them and they can, you know, we can be in the same social space together as like corporeal beings or whatever, there's a certain, you know, meanness that comes through that I don't have to, that I, you know, I don't pick and choose, right? Like I, I uh, sort of, portray, you know, sort of just demonstrate like the, the, the being that I am and someone else can love it or hate it or whatever else where online, you know, um, we're almost always reduced down to like a set of signals to each other that we have to choose, right? Like you go on Facebook or you go on whatever the kids are on these days and like you assemble like, or a dating profile, for example, is a really good example. Like you assemble a self out of all these various lists of options and you have to kind of like affirmatively state who you are. Um, and I think many of us just don't feel like we have a really strong grasp on what exactly that is. And it's, you know, like our cultural goods have become so loaded that it's a really easy shorthand to say, oh, I'm a diehard Star Wars fan. And there's a whole sort of set of associations mm -hmm. that come with that, that it seems like a way to sort of... Unsophisticated Rube who yeah. doesn't have the patience to actually sit through multiple series of Star Trek, which is the more enlightened choice. Yes, mm -hmm. very much so. Exactly. Um, or, <laughs> or, but, okay, but even there, like, you know, you can chop it up. Like, are you a Kirk or a, or a, or a what is it, Kirk or a Picard, right? Like, Picard. Like those mm -hmm. kind of choices um i think become um really effective shorthand for people when they feel like you know i've got to define myself somewhat how and in this online space everything is performed everything is explicit so i don't have a better way to do that but as i've been saying for years it's like look like you know um no matter what you like millions of other people like it right like you know, you're a Beatles fan, you and like four, four billion other people. Right. So like, it's not, it, it's not actually going to, to end up being like this meaningful identity category for you. But I, but despite that, like this stuff just seems, it, it yeah. is. <laughs> for yeah. people. Well, look, I don't want to be too, too glib about it. There certainly are. I have my own fandoms and as evidenced by the shade, I just threw to star Wars people. Mm. I'm willing to defend it to the death. Let's bring T in here. It looks like he has negotiated his issues with the app. And if he unmutes himself, should be able to start participating. T, can you hear us? Trevor, are you still having technical issues? Uh, think, oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay. You just caught me off guard. I was just pleasantly listening. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I want to I welcome you to the conversation. Hello. Oh, you got a soundboard. <laughs> nice. Nice. You, you know, it's funny. I uh, was hoping Leslie was going to be here because uh, I feel like he had a stronger stance on this. Like, I am not like a huge fan of the Beatles, but I don't um, dislike them either. But um, what I didn't get a chance to say was uh, I my big thing with them being overrated is uh, the blacker they try to make the music, the more it loses me. So it's like... Uh, I didn't say this yesterday, but what do you mean? The, the beginning stuff, they were really trying to channel uh, blackness, and they were doing covers of a lot of, uh, I mean, the most famous cover is uh, the Twist and Shout song, but I feel like as they evolved and went into albums, and the music started, started sounding more folksy and British, and to me, I felt like more um, in line with their heritage. Actually, like that music uh a lot more than when they tried to do straight up rhythm and blues because i just think it was just kind of an uncanny valley to the music uh to me when they when they try to do that so it's like 
something funny someone said when you announced this. Someone said, uh, I hope he uh, listens to the Beatles catalog this time, which was weird. The, <laughs> the assumption that I never listened to mm-hmm. them, because I don't think I ever said that. That was kind of funny that they assumed the only way I could not be uh, super enthused by uh, their music, which is all I said. I think all. The only. Sorry. That's my oh, bad. Okay. Yeah. I say, the only thing I think um, to me that. I think Leslie and I said was that we uh, thought they were overrated, which I, you know, do. But they're so highly rated. I think it's hard for anybody to be that big and not be overrated. But uh, I particularly did not like their early stuff, which is what kind of put them in a position to experiment and do all the later stuff that I like more. So why is it important? You know, let, let's devil, devil's advocate this. Why is it important to you, T, to call out the Beatles as overrated if you still think that they're pretty highly rated, given that they're so well-regarded, generally speaking? I more have annoyance with Beatles fans, more so than the Beatles, because whenever in my <laughs> life I say, yeah, I like the Beatles a little bit, but, you know, I'm not super crazy about them. Uh, they just believe, A, you've never heard the Beatles, or they think you're trying to be a contrarian troll, or they try to proselytize to you. Aren't you, T, a little bit trying to be a contrarian troll? Don't you know what you're doing? Don't you think Leslie knew what he was doing with that tweet? Well, Leslie leaned way more into it than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I would say uh, more with him. I I just kind of said that, uh, you know what I said today on on Twitter, which was that, uh, because I learned from experience with uh, Bob Dylan and... uh, the Beatles that you don't want to stay in that space too long. You just get some more and more people just uh, getting getting angry because Bob Dylan is the other one where I'm like, uh, okay, I like some of this guy's song, but I'm not that crazy about him. And that's that's like hours of me having to defend my stance. So, uh, I mean, but there's a full no. expectation. Mm-hmm. I will cop that there's a full expectation that when I say it, there's going to be a lot of angry people. So I will say to that extent, I was uh, probably being a contrarian troll in that. Uh, even by my expectations, what happened when your tweet yesterday really surprised me? I had to mute, I had to mute that tweet. <laughs> yeah. This is probably one of the biggest ratios Bad Faith has ever gotten on just a post about an episode. And we have, you know, been in the thick of it for a while now. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's obviously set some people off. You know, Freddie, you're here today in part because you reached out to me. You know, we are in email correspondence about this. What was it for you? that was, you know, triggering. Well, yeah, so I mean, I, I, know I would say it was triggering. I mean, I, again, like, I think that, like, from what I understand from listening to the podcast, the, the response to Leslie's tweet was really kind of ridiculous. I, here's the thing that I, I think there's a few things that, that are going on. I think the first thing is that um, uh, this stuff is so difficult uh, to have meaningful conversations about because at some point you just get to, I like this and the other person saying, I don't like this. And as much as I write criticism of movies and books, uh, uh, movies and uh, books and music, and I value that I read it at the same time, like um, especially with music, I think with more than any other medium, it's like at some point you just vibe to something or you don't. Right. And I think that we've all had the, the experience at some point that like 
some big song will go huge and you just listen to it and it just does nothing for you. And you know, there's millions of people who are into it. And you're like, what is this not saying to me that it's saying to them or. Right. Right. But this is a story about backlash, right? There, right. you know, if some one direction song comes out, you know, the new Taylor Swift album, there's plenty of people who are very enthusiastic about it and it trended for like a week. And there are a lot of people who don't care about Taylor Swift and never will and said as much. And there wasn't some big backlash from Taylor right. Swift's fans that said, Oh my God, how can you not respect that? She's putting out her own catalog again after she got so abused by her last role. Like I, nobody really cares. Right. So I guess there's, I think there's two things though. The first is that for so many people, the Beatles was, and certainly was true for me, the Beatles, that, that band was the gateway drug to developing an adult musical taste, right? Like it was, you know, everybody of my generation, I'm an older millennial. Um, Welcome. Every, <laughs> uh, anybody of my generation, um, their parents had all these Beatles albums and for many of us, like, that was just the way that you discovered that. Okay, but let me stop you there, Freddie, because this is kind yeah. of the point. I am also an elder millennial, and I promise you my parents didn't have any Beatles albums. Okay, and, well, and this is kind of what we're getting true. to with this cultural hegemony point. There is a kind of presumption, well, right. you know, that that is a shared experience. And when I tell you my mother could not name true. four Beatles songs gun to her head, you know, she'd be hard-pressed. When she sees me singing lyrics, she's like, how on earth do you know those songs? And the answer is not that I came up with them. The answer was is that in 1998, I started taking guitar lessons and every or self-teaching myself, and all of the guitar books were like back-to-back Beatles songs. Right, that's true. Well, look, like I mean, you know, I, I think this is the other another dimension of this is that um, perhaps more than any other uh, medium of artistic expression, music is racially associated and racially coded, and I mean, on the one hand, the, you know, look, like you cannot like American music that came out after, you know, 1900 and not like music produced by black artists and songwriters and producers because that's, you know, it's just a vast chunk of the music. So it's not as if these lines are very particularly uh, uh, clear. But I mean, I, I do think that there are, uh, you know, obvious differences in terms of listening patterns or there were earlier uh, on uh, in the sort of 20th century and that that has valence for sort of like what is part of any person's sort of like familial history. But this also gets to the thing with the Beatles where it's like, again, like for people who are into them, um, it, it tends to have been something that was handed down from their parents to them. Right. And I think that one of the weird things that's happened now is um, again, probably inter internet mediated, um, the way people discover things is so different now and there really isn't like, you know, all these lines have become impermeable. Right. I mean, I had mentioned K-pop before. It's a perfect example where like you know, 20 years ago it would have been unthinkable that all of these, you know, 13 year olds would be absolutely obsessed with uh, <laughs> these K-pop uh, acts. And so that's changed. And, so I think like the Beatles for a lot of a lot of people like me, people who come from, you know, maybe largely white, although obviously there's plenty of uh, people of color who like like the Beatles. But, you know, it comes from a sort of family lineage. It was a gateway of drugs to other things. But also it harkens back to a time when there was such a thing as mass culture. Right. When like, you know, people will sometimes talk about these experiences like, I don't know, like the last episode of Cheers or something. Right. Like these these television show experiences where. 
uh, it, everybody was watching and just huge portions of the public were uh, conscious of these things. Whereas everything now is sort of a niche taste. And even like a show like Game of Thrones was like the, like the last I can think of as like a really huge cross, you know, uh, vast swaths of people hit. And now, like, I can't think of any shows that even occupy the position of a Game of Thrones, much less of a Cheers. And so I think part of what's happening... I think is- they exist. They're just all on CBS and uh, hi- cultural culture writers and highbrow people like ourselves don't watch them. Well, that's probably true, yeah. But I just think that there's, like, a, a sense in which, like, for, you know, for people who are into them, the Beatles, like, are a symbol of a mass culture that a lot of people have nostalgia for in a world where now everybody is is so cut up and they're sharing their Spotify playlists, right? Because like they're, they're demonstrating like, okay, this is who, you know, how different I am from everybody else, but that cultural touchstone quality, it's hard to name anybody who fills that slot now. Well, I would say Freddie that even back in the day, I think the point, and, and it's, I think this is really useful that we're talking about it this way, because even back in the day and the time period, you're identifying as having more shared culture you know, I think some part of that is obviously true. There's like three television channels or whatever. Everybody's watching Walter Cronkite or whatever. But it's also the case that even back then, it there was there the 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 veneer of cultural of, of something that was broadly shared was just that it was a veneer. That even in the 1960s, black people were not, despite Beatlemania, getting caught up in it in the same way. And obviously, we're speaking in like reductive terms. Obviously, there's some people in the 60s who obviously must have liked the Beatles. But, you know, you know my mother was peak kind of age, maybe a little bit on the younger side, for being into that sort of thing and literally could not, for a million dollars, hum hard days and night. Like, could not, like, just could not. Mm. In the thick of it, in a very, like, musical city like you know in a in a urban area so i think that is part of the resistance i mean we had this conversation on the podcast a while back because it became clear to me that there are people who are very very famous and i want you to weigh in here t they're very very famous to black people who non-black people truly don't know exist like there are a bunch of people who maybe now know uh snally then because she's on um uh, she's on this new season of Succession as uh, Kendall's lawyer, but don't like they just she's some random actress, not like one of the biggest female black actresses that we know. And and we went through the in an earlier episode the whole cast of um, what was it? Uh, the cast of uh, Holiday, uh, the, the Best Man, which is like a classic black film, and I just named every actor I could in the in the film, and it became clear that like these are people that are very famous to me, but apart from like Terrence Howard, just aren't more broadly known. And there's something wrong with that, right? I'm not like haranguing anybody for not knowing who Neil Long is, sort of. But it is interesting to me that there's this asymmetry that mostly goes unobserved by anybody except for people in the minority culture. And in music, I mean, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. And you made the point to me that in music, you know, that, you know, black people do seem to have this influence in setting what is cool and setting what is popular and all of that today. But even though, to your point, there always has been this disproportionate influence that black people in this country have had on the musical scene, it still resulted in white act uh, and white musicians making 
white versions of black music that could then take the place of the black artist. So you get your Elvis Presleys and you get your Beatles in some respect. And the culture, the broader white culture does glom on to those actors, but the black culture is still using the black versions, the original versions of all of those. And there isn't, there isn't this buy-in. There isn't this universal buy-in at all. And that's why, that's the only reason that I thought that this, the reaction to the tweet was so interesting because it is, it is just interesting to me. Um, you know, this is, I don't mean to go here, but like, this is literally, oh God, I'm going to get in trouble. This is literally what's, what's being described, this phenomenon of <laughs> white fragility. <laughs> like, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's poking a hole and it. it's, it's a dissonance that, that's created by realizing that certain expectations of how the world works and your place in it aren't really what they are. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I just mean it. It's, I think it's like a, it's instructive in some ways. And I think really healthy for people to have that bubble burst in really innocuous contexts like were the Beatles actually popular to everybody in the country or in the world in 1970 or 1965 or whatever. Yeah. You know, what's uh, interesting about all that. I was wondering how many people, uh, here's an example of an actor that I think a lot of black people know, but a lot of, uh, non-black people don't know but uh the actor clifton powell he's been like in so many black movies uh if you like google him uh if any black person googles him and sees his face they'll know exactly who he is but i think even a lot of black people might not even know his name but he's been like in every oh yeah that guy yeah yeah exactly see, as soon as you <laughs> see him like like you know exactly who he is uh he's been like in every uh black tv series at some point uh below a certain uh um why do fools fall in love? Dead presidents, minister society, rush hour, next Friday, Friday after next, Ray. Yeah, yeah. So, so like in the black so, community, a lot of people like uh, love that guy, but I don't think he's uh, made any dent in the mainstream uh, fandom of movies and everything. But um, yeah, it's like it's like I was wondering how many people actually saw the episode because people responded to the tweet so fast and some of the responses were so interesting because they were saying stuff like there's so many important things going on in the world and you're talking about this and people are dying I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah i saw that, that one that, yeah it's not that serious bro it's like okay <laughs> somebody was mad at me for not talking about they're like medicare for why aren't you doing talking about medicare for all and i was like sir <laughs> i responded with one of those gifts of like a really tired black lady <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's I talk like about Medicare for all every day. I promise we'll be right back to it. Like Monday's episode is about abortion. I hope it makes you happy. Like, if, can we yeah, like if it doesn't if it doesn't happen, it's because it is one day off. I'm not talking about it, Bree. That you know <laughs> you can trace it all back to that. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, and, and that guy's defense, he did delete his tweet and say, "I'm sorry." He's just and people are are hurrying, and so I get it. I'm not I'm not trying to be an a hole either. Um, but how about this? Let's hear from the people. I see people are queued up. Before we do, I'm going to play the t- quick intro clip to just give people who haven't listened to the episode a taste of the discourse and a taste of some of um, Leslie's spicy takes. And then we'll start taking questions. Let's see if I can get this Okay, and I will give uh, probably my spiciest take that I didn't get to give um, during during the show. But uh, when the Beatles, uh, the early Beatles stuff, uh, when they tried to do like black music, it felt like a Renaissance fair band trying to do covers of black music and later on when they just started you know doing more folksy you know northern sounding music you know like eight minute songs and you know all these pipes and everything i actually like that stuff a lot more 
But yeah, it's mostly the beginning stuff that I just really am not that crazy about. And I'll just stop there. All right. Okay. Well, I'm sure people have thoughts and feelings about that. Let me play this clip real quick and then we'll go to questions. Only reason people think that the Beatles are the greatest band of all time is because they, they've had the most sustained media campaign over decades and decades telling people that they're the greatest. When, when I heard, first heard the Isley Brothers twist and shout, I was, and then I tried to re-listen to the Beatles one. I was like, wow, this is just a boy band version. I keep it to myself that I'm not the biggest fan of the Beatles while everybody gushes. Like, I'm trying to be polite. Meanwhile, it's this very same artists have done so much to appropriate the black progenitors of this art. I'm in trouble if, if I point out that I like the I like the real thing. How can you possibly think uh, and say as a white person that you tr- really truly think that objectively the greatest band of all time just so happened to be the band with the biggest marketing budget? Because I don't believe any of these people are. All right. First up, we uh, have. I want to say real quick. Uh, oh. Something about that sounded very sure. sinister. I just like the music. It sounded like a like a true crime, a true crime type <laughs> of trailer. Right? Well, we you know the the person who made our theme song um, is the guy who wrote the theme song for acclaimed show Serial. Ah, we you know we invested. We, we paid a pretty penny. We invested in that theme song, and I hope to get something similar going for this show, so we don't have to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't quite the same quality, but it's better than nothing, right? That serial thing makes so much sense though, because it sounded so true crime, like like uh <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, um let's uh go to Hunter, our our first um speaker. How you doing, Hunter? Oops, did that work? I Hello. Maybe you didn't do it right. Can you hear me? Hey, Hunter. Sorry, I didn't mean, mean to make you a speaker, but go ahead. No, you're good. Um, so I'm kind of taking a little bit of a turn on this, but um, somebody, I forget who it was, but basically said, you know, how the Beatles come out with something like every decade, you know, just to get you to buy it. Um, and the relation mm-hmm. to that with kind of movies and how we're stuck in remaking all these old movies and they end up being awful um cinderella you know uh and kind of just like the relation to that and american culture and like a decline almost you know the biggest uh not game of thrones i would say squid games was the biggest like kind of mass cultural event um Mm. but yeah so i guess that's kind of my question Do the, so. The question is: Do you think this is all about Americans not, or the culture at large, not being able to come up with anything new yeah, anymore? Yeah, kind of. And like, what do you guys yeah, think? Yeah, and like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if this applies to like all aspects of kind of all art and media and culture, um, but definitely like with movies, I feel like there's been less and less like blockbusters that everybody's watching, and a lot of it is just repetitive. All right, what do you guys think of that? Thank you, Hunter. I mean, on the on the Squid Game no, no. Uh, uh, thing, like, <laughs> I think that that's a good example of the difference between a communal artistic experience where everyone's taking it in and the appearance of a communal artistic experience, uh, which is uh, created by... Uh, 
like the you know the particular obsessions of the content industry and the way that like certain things generate you know there's this whole sort of sort of parasitic uh uh business model uh online of creating and producing content about you know hit shows and and movies and things like that and you know that in, in which i partake in myself um uh, and that creates the impression that like everyone is watching this. And so you think, well, everyone is watching this, but um, in both the United States and Canada combined, I think there's about 75 million Netflix subscribers. Okay. Um, and, you know, significantly more people mm. th- than that watched the MASH finale, uh, which happened, you know, 40 years ago or no, like 45 years ago, something like that. Uh, and when the, the country's population was much lower, and of course, um, nothing like a hundred percent of the of the people who have Netflix are watching Squid Game, right? So, the you know, I just think that the the fragmentation uh, of everything into just, I mean, you cannot possibly keep up with every TV show of note. It's simply impossible. There just literally aren't enough hours in the day anymore. Um, and so, I think that that sort of thing uh, is gone. Um, as far as like the, you know, this sort of, yeah, like I think that it is a little cynical uh, the way that, uh, you know, I'm sure there's going to be another new big, you know, Beatles box set coming out. But that's sort of like, as he mentioned, that as Hunter said, that's kind of everything in culture now, right? It's like, how many times can we... Uh, uh, can we pick the same fruit over and over and over again from the same tree um, is just by sort of baked into the cake where, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite sure that I'll be getting, uh, I mean, forget about something like Marvel, right? It's like every like three to five years, there's some big new production of, you know, movie of a Christmas Carol, sometimes with a slant, like it's the Muppets Christmas Carol or whatever. And that's going to be happening for the rest of my days, right? Like I'm never not going to live in a world with something like that. Okay. But wasn't this the thing? Like I I took a class in college, uh, Orpheus and Eurydice. And the whole point is that we read every iteration of Orpheus and Eurydice over time, the virtual opera, the, this, the, that, the, this, you know, like that, that there have always been stories that have been told over and over and over again over the course of time. And sometimes I, I wonder if we aren't all just being curmudgeonly talking about how there's something new under the sun. We're obviously something like, um, whatchamacallit, Squid Games is so new. It, it, and it does seem to have sparked something original. And you have these movies like Parasite. Maybe only new stuff is coming out of Korea. I don't know what the bag is. But like, it, it does feel like maybe, of course, there's going to be the 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 re the remakes, but because we have so much content, it's right there alongside of a lot of original content, a lot of low quality original content. I would also put to you. I mean, the Christmas movies alone <laughs> really spell the end of days. Yeah, I mean, I I I'm not I'm not like I I can't I don't have much to complain about in the terms of like the fire hose of content where we all get everything all the time. I do think that an under discussed story is that. Um, uh, Hollywood and the movie industry um, are becoming um, kind of like the American economy writ large, which is that they're hollowing, hollowing out in the in the middle. Where so music is the perfect example of this. Um, you know, everybody talked about the, the sort of the, the, the vast decline in the fortunes of the music industry when file sharing became possible. So, it, it, if I remember correctly, into the year two thousand. 
music was a $20 billion industry and now it's only an $8 billion industry. And usually like industries grow, right? They don't shrink. Um, but it's, but of course, Jay-Z is still a billionaire and he can sell vitamin water and stuff for the rest of his life. But the people who really lost out were like the musical middle class, like A&R guys, session musicians, engineers in the, in the recording booth. And so like the creative industries, you know, have always had a problem with catering to the interests of the children of the wealthy and with nepotism and things like that. And more and more, it seems that in a lot of these fields, you can only really attempt to jump into them um, if you are, if you know, if you come from, uh, from means, because uh, the financial, you know, it's just become more and more of a, you know, that 1% of people make a, a huge fortune and the rest of people are not making any money at all, which is pretty depressing. Mm. Uh, we got a socialized music industry. I wanted to put some facts to your mash uh, quote. I just was curious. And so I Googled it. Um, you were right that, oh, did I just click off of it for frick's sake? Um, 100, uh, 105.9 million viewers watched the MASH finale on, on February 28th, 1983, which is a lot more recent than I thought it was going to be for some reason. Um, uh, with respect to Something interesting to about, games. about MASH, MASH was very polarizing. Uh, like, people used to hate the opening helicopter shot. Because uh, because it, it was a sign that match was about to start, but there were only like three networks at the time, so it, it had it benefited from just right. not a lot of uh... right competition. But so that one hundred and five point nine million viewers for the finale compared to um, Squid Games was actually one hundred and forty two million households viewed Squid Games, but that was within the first twenty eight days. So you can read that two ways. You can say it's less successful than MASH because it's spread out over time, even though it's slightly more households or like about 40% more households. Or you can say household is more than one person. And so that actually reflects many more views. And the fact that you can watch things on your own timetable is why it was spread out. And it's not necessarily reflective of interest level or anything. It's just that people are getting it into their lives. But it, it is an interesting comparison. I mean, your point stands, um, Freddie, that it was incredibly popular. Let's take the next question from Kathy. Yeah, hi. Um, I just think, you know, that you might have listened to different things than white people did when you were growing up, or your mother might have listened to different things. But basically, I, I just, I don't, I don't think people just listen to whatever they listen to, but, they, you know, they, they relate to that shared experience i don't think it really has to do with race other than the fact that we broke that we live in a you know a separated more separated society back then i suppose you know that's why a lot of the white artists took from the black music also is that you know black artists weren't put forward they weren't getting contracts so there was just all this undiscovered music there that white people took from them but you know, the thing is, you know, that thing about the mass culture, that really is something a little different in when I was, you know, I mean, I watched the MASH episode, you know, I'm 62 years old. So I watched the MASH episode and there is something about a shared experience, but especially with music, you just, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of the soundtrack of our lives or whatever. And so there's there is a shared experience there that you know is moving to people and i think that's why people you know i don't know i didn't really read 
on Twitter about the Beatles thing, but you know, if there was people were getting all up in arms about it, it's probably because they feel like, you know, they feel this um, connection from that music because everyone else was listening to it also. I mean, I was married to a guy from the Basque country, the French part of the Basque country. And like, we went to this fair at, you know, his little town and all these people were singing these folk songs together, you know, and there was just such an emotional feeling. They all knew the words. They all grew up with these songs. And, you know, it was the sharing of it that, you know, and somebody asked me, what do you have that's like this in, in American culture or whatever? And I said, nothing, you know, <laughs> I couldn't think of anything like that, mm-hmm. you know. But, I mean, there is a, a certain, I guess, just listening to the radio, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have playlists you know you just were kind of stuck with whatever they put on the radio but in a way that was good because we all sort of were mostly listening to the same stuff obviously it's better to have you know some variety to it but there's something deep and moving about having a shared experience sort of I think and and you know obviously the 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 backdrop of this is that we live in a racist society so you know, a lot of the, you know, we socialized separately, especially in the past, um, so that your mother was going to different places where they were playing different music, and that's why she knows all those, you know. The last thing I want to say is, (laughs) I mean, I've kind of wondered about this phenomenon on YouTube, and I have to say that I, I, um, have given into this myself. <laughs> I don't know. They have like all these young black kids mostly listening to this music and giving reactions to music, mostly of people, you know, of boomer music, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's something very appealing about listening to those, that, you know, I mean, lo- listening to those reactions because, you know, I, I guess. Partially it's black kids, maybe because some of these black kids really never have heard songs that you can't believe they've never heard, you know, I mean, like a Beatles song or something. So it's fun to listen to it and get their reaction. And I guess it's just validating of your experience that, you know, this young person across all these generations can still say, you know, I like this. I can see how this is a, you know, catchy tune or whatever it is. You know, there's just something that you get to share with somebody that wasn't there, but you want to say, you know, yeah, this is really cool, wasn't it? I don't know. So <laughs> I just think it's funny that there's all these kids making all this money, you know, young black men who are, in, you know, it's like rap fan comments on whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Hard Night or something, you know. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, thank you, thank you, Kathy. Freddie, you wanted to weigh in on this. I just want to say, like, I, I. Uh, I really find it kind of dehumanizing when there are videos th- which go semi-viral based on the premise that like it is baffling that a young black person would like music that's identified as like white person music. Like I don't. Oh, it goes both ways. Totally. Like the, a whole genre of like internet virality is black people doing quote unquote white things and white people doing quote unquote black things. So like white people dancing, people love to watch white people dancing competently or well (laughs) and people love to watch like 
black folks um, doing something, you know, quote unquote, proper identified speaking with the British accent, wearing period clothes, you know, something that seems out of, you know, like reading. There's a there's a meme of like a black family, like with young kids reading a book on the subway that is in my Instagram feed like once a week. (laughs) Yeah, there's just there's so many videos on YouTube that are like black kid loves. You know, and then it'll say like some song that is like a great song. I'm like, yeah, no shit, he loves it. It's a good fucking song, and it's like, yeah, I totally agree. I I know what you're saying. Yeah, the only, yeah, it only makes sense if you assume that like that black kid that would not have his own taste and his own ability to like, oh yeah, this is good music. It just the whole thing squicks me out, man. Yeah, I mean, I do want to say something to Kathy's earlier point um, about her partner from Basque Country and how there doesn't seem to be anything that's genuinely unifying in that way. And I and I do think that some people wouldn't agree that that they think that there are things that are unifying, but it's because they are presuming that the thing that the dominant you know white culture was into was also you know shared by the black minority culture. And I think that is exactly what the rub is here and why the, there was so much dissonance around this tweet, the presumption that everybody loved the Beatles. Right. And I guess the reason why I keep picking at this point, I was reflecting on this like CRT conversation that we're having. Sorry to make everything about CRT, but part of the, the ostensible goals of whatever this education is, whatever you want to call it or however you feel about it is to problematize that presumption that everything w- that we were together at this time in history, that, you know, there was one community, there was one America, that we do have these shared values, that everybody sees the same thing the same way. And for so long, our history books and the way we were taught and the way we were learned did presume that we all always thought of everything the same way. And the divisiveness is new. How often do you turn on the TV and hear someone talk about how things have gotten so divisive as though we didn't literally have segregated country like 60 years ago? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so there's a part of me that I feel like it, it's not just cultural criticism here. It's an important like historical reorientation and a reminder that, you know, even musically in these kind of, in, in these contexts that aren't so weighted and aren't so important as, you know, segregated schools or whatever, that it's important for us to challenge the extent to which even like leftists or liberals will put a, a fuzzy gloss on how things were back then. Because also the people we associate as being into the Beatles or even like the Stones or like cooler groups we think of that as like liberal hit people who were down for the cause, not the folks opposing integration and stuff, but there's still a lens on those people. There's still like blinders on people who were into that music. If you like just suggest that they were still in a segregated entertainment space back then. And that's not to cast blame or to say like there was anything wrong with that. But I, from my experience in my family and talking to my mom, at least she is very conscious of the extent to which her, kind of cultural preferences were looked down upon and she feels a dramatic shift in how her cultural preferences have now become mainstream and highly valued. And I'd say even as an elder millennial in the 90s, I mean, we had segregated music. Like if I go on a car trip and put on a Spotify playlist with my friends and we're like, oh, we're old. You want to listen to music from the 90s? We have to pick on Spotify. Most of those 90s playlists are like you're picking an R&B hip hop 90s playlist or you're picking a rock 90s playlist. And you know, you have to like dig a little to find one that has just like top songs of all time because there was like, it did feel like two very separate lanes you could be on at that time period. 
and you had to flip between radio stations to get a little bit of A and a little bit of B. And now we have hip hop stars and, you know, for like five, 10 years there, all the hip hop was like uh, electronic. What do you call it? What's the initial that I'm looking for? The acronym E. EDM, EDM, all the hip hop was EDM. And you've got, you know, Lil Nas X and all these people exploding genres, but that just wasn't how it was. And I do think that ignoring that can be a kind of historical erasure, the same way that people try to cast this like the, the past in, the, in a halcyon light and erase, you know, some of the more substantial racial fissures that once existed. Yeah, I, I think that it's important to say, though, that like there's also been a phenomenon at least since when I was an adolescent, which is like, um, it became very cool as a white person to associate yourself with black cultural products and with black music specifically. And I, one thing that I think is sort of a dead end and that I, I hope people get past is like trying to substitute uh, association with black culture and black, black art as like a racial politics in and of itself. And like, I'll tell you, like, the perfect example is, like, the show The Wire, which I think is an excellent show. I think it's a wonderful show, uh, and I quite enjoy it. Um, there was a time when, like, if there was a white people Olympics, like, competitively liking The Wire was, like, the most competitive event. <laughs> you know what I'm like, it was just every white person I know was so desperate to let you know that they're so into The Wire, and because that show is about Baltimore, which is a very black city, and it's about the drug trade, and it's about it's a very you know black uh, cast and with a lot of uh, black people behind the camera as well. It just became like mm-hmm. this way to sort of show that you had a kind of elevated sensibility about race, um, mm-hmm. in much the same way that a lot of people were sort of performatively tell you you know how much they love hip hop and they you know I mean when I was in high school in the late nineties like you know. Uh, you know, you know, loving hip hop was something that we all did because it was good music, but also you, you know, it is this thing that you had to sort of telegraph to the people around you. Um, and I think that like, it's just not, you're never going to emerge, you're never going to emerge like an actually like useful racial politics. That's just a matter of pure association. Right. And I think that, that one thing that, that, we as white people need to do is not to sort of try to show sort of vague positive vibes for black people or black culture, but, to, you know, to, to understand that these things are interesting lenses through which to better understand like the world we're in and the racial, uh, uh, the racial world that we're in. But like, <clears throat> you can't substitute liking black culture for having a you know racially progressive politics like you actually have to like do the uncomfortable work of saying like okay and here's what i think like should happen in this country as regards to race and not just be like i cannot tell you how much i love that rap music. <laughs> let me tell you i almost i still have not seen the wire i started it in covid but didn't get that far in part because I was so sort of made uncomfortable by the insistence of the white people in my life that I absolutely should be should be watching it for the exact reasons that you articulated. Similarly, when I was at the law firm, there was one partner who used to tell me all the time how much, you know, have you seen, um, have you seen uh, Hamilton? We've gone to see Hamilton four times now. And, you know, uh, have you seen The Color Purple? I went backstage and took my daughter to meet Cynthia Erivo. Do you know Cynthia Erivo? I think you would really love Cynthia Erivo. 
And she was the term that the comes to mind is like a type of racial virtue signaling. Like, even though it's like a, a term that people right. don't like to use too much, but that's a hundred percent. And I would be avoiding those women in the halls because one, the the lack of insight to understand that most people can't afford to go and see a show that has like eight hundred dollar tickets multiple times with their children who are probably not even going to remember it. Her like little seven year old daughter, and then also just like gushing about like why haven't I seen Hamilton yet? I'm like, because you don't pay me enough to go see Hamilton. <laughs> um. But yeah, it's 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 creepy and weird. Um, let's take the next caller, David. Here you go, David. Just how do I? Yeah, what do I do? <laughs> Hi. Oh man, you rock! You 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 rock! Whenever you open these these uh, these call in and everything you do, you're so entertaining. You're wicked brilliant, oh, thank man. You. And you bring up some great guests. And well, I appreciate that. <clears throat> applause, applause for David. No, 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 for, no, no, for reals. Because you we only a certain very small number of people can lead the conversations that you're leading, and we desperately need it, right? So so no, it's awesome. You know, it, we all need to throw mad applause at you. And and I just wanted to chime in. I, I was you brought me up a few weeks ago. I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to chime in on this one because I I I was like, "What? <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm trying to. I'm trying. I miss. I missed miss the tweet from. Um, I forget the name. Leslie Lee or something. I, I missed it, so I missed that. That that I, that I didn't stump. Leslie is in the building, actually. I hey, just Leslie. Was told. Right on. I'm cool. inviting him up on stage. Cool. And I, I missed it, so I'm not going to chime at all on that. I just wanted to, uh, as a Latino baby boomer, whose first song. I was born in 64. My first song was I Want to Hold Your Hand. <laughs> mm. And later, and later I, uh, but I was Mexican in a trailer, right? So it's mm. like, <laughs> so, um, and it, I have lived uh, the, the just a uh, working class life, had a you know, bunch of different friends, different cultures. So I have had some, uh, some taste and exposure. And I'm also a drummer and a salsa dancer and all these other things. But I also spend a lot of times in games. So, so the mm. only things I'd like, it, it, and as a music composer, I guess I, I would, I would, for those who compose music, the role of influence is huge. You know, so mad props to all of the the uh, the the blues man, the blues in the fifties. It really helped birth all the rock and roll. Um, so the Beatles are they overrated? Mm. It totally depends on how you set the context. Anybody saying that they were the best band of all time, that you could shoot that down all day long for lots of different reasons. I can just, you know, I think part of the ways that you need to scope that, if you want to have the kinds of, I, I liked how you were trying to pull up some metrics. Because, you know, those metrics are, if you want to get it all nerdy, nerded mm. out, which is great because you can totally, you're, 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 you got the intellect, you can totally nerd out in any direction, which is awesome. Um, but those metrics would be important. And so um, I think I think another thing to keep in mind, though, is just uh, there's a bigger there's a bigger world out there. Right. So we're talking about if, if I go back personally to the 60s and then you kind of look at a few decades here in the States and then all the conversation mm-hmm. has just been spot on in so many different ways. But having a lot of my career in games. You know, you start to pull up some metrics on games and the role of 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 even game music right the Le- legends of zelda's fucking soundtrack you know um and the world of games 
Mm, well, that flute. yeah, yeah, but no, but the, my. <laughs> I love that little flute ditty you had to play in the game. <laughs> well, I mean, that's my point, right? So, so as a you know recovering drummer and salsa dancing addict, and but as a as a gamer, mm. um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I did watch that that uh, that mash episode, although I wasn't that big a mash mash you know TV episode watcher. And then the media, like I read all the spots, all I'm sorry, all the points that you're nailing with regards to the concentration in the media and how that's changed. And, and just how so many people can get uh, can get access to so many different types of music now. It was a to- it was a, literally a different world and a different life back then. But you're spot on in terms of the uh, the CRT kind of context. You know, being Latino, you know, there was there was mm. no access to all kinds of of anything. And I would argue, and that's, this is, wouldn't even be tough to argue, if you look at the Hispanic and Latino market, the amount of concentration in Univision and Telemundo, I mean, it's, it's you know, why, I, I, I respect Jennifer Lopez for just being, you know, just, just you go girl type of thing. But at the same, at the same time, the concentration mm-hmm. in, uh, of all of the uh, Latin everything in the same half a dozen or dozen personalities over the last 20 years doesn't give a break to, to all of mm. you younger people. Like, pass the damn torch already. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole – no, no, but seriously, there's a whole <laughs> lot, of, lot of dynamics here in effect, right, that, uh, that are in effect. So in mm-hmm. closing, I'd like to say one thing, which is, which is you know – the sure. biggest song and the most popular band in history is probably a song in Mandarin and probably, <laughs> and it's going to be, Ch- you know, it's going to be Chinese. You know, if, if we, as we start to just think about what's how the world is, has been evolving. And if you really take a step back and we, we might not be listening to it, but if you do know what's going on in China in terms of, you know, just all the media control and everything. It's just, it would be an interesting lens to kind of look at as well of in terms of how, how pop culture is influenced by the stories and, and the emotions of music. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole, apparently the most famous movie, uh, you know, like big screen movie. And apparently mm-hmm. The Chinese film market has learned everything, and I think you can see this in Netflix. If you look at some of those, you know, the Korean and the the Chinese, our secrets, our supposed secret sauce of Western filmmaking, all that's all been, you know, they 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 can they've already learned it, right? They've got some really entertaining feature films mm. and all this, and apparently, the most popular movie in China is I think it's a telling of the I think it's the Korean War that has a very different. Um, it, it basically pumps uh, the Chinese military's success. I mean, it's a whole different perspective that is would be rich mm. for anybody who wants to like really stretch their mind about about the role of of a pop cultural uh, media and its effect on the the minds of people that that uh, you know kind of digest it or, or consume it, whatever. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for that internationalist perspective, David. I, I feel like my I have to go and you know, my brother will be thrilled to think of a world where all the pop songs are in Chinese. He lived in, in Beijing for four years and is pretty close to fluent and his main party trick is going to uh karaoke bars and wowing everybody by being able to actually, you know, competently <laughs> sing sing along the larynx. Um I, I do think that 
we're going to have very interesting conversations going forward as the world starts to change and shift. Um, and I hope that I'm yeah. around to hear them. And I do think there's really some to, something to be said about the popularity of all of these movies that are coming out of the East, you know, specific, specifically uh, these Korean movies, uh, the fact that they are really have their finger on the pulse of the capitalist critique in a lot of these movies. Um, and moreover, that there yeah. is, you know, American hegemony is taking a backseat as we see the rise of BTS and some of these other figures coming very kind of unexpectedly. I think if you asked me 20 years ago what I think a Korean pop band who sings largely in Korean was going to be a hit in the United States. Or, or we have, have we all forgot, um, you know, Gangnam Style was the first one who made the leap, right? I'm old enough to remember part of that in 2011. Yeah. So thank, thank you, David. <laughs> I want to give um, Freddie and T a chance to weigh in. And Leslie, I see you in the room. I invited, invited you to the, to the stage. So feel free to come on up. Uh, something that David touched on, which is something that I was uh, waiting to bring up, and being that he touched on it, uh, I feel like it's a good time for me to, to bring it up, is I think the Beatles conversation is also uh, symptomatic of like a bigger problem, which you know I call like the boomer stranglehold on culture, which I think is a perfect storm of different things in that the boomers weren't the first generation to exist during a time of mass media i mean we've been in uh mass media since the days of the telegram and the radio but the moving image was like one major step but after the moving image specifically television television was the the big i think uh technology that took like the idea of mass media and popular culture to the next level because you didn't have to leave your house or you know, go see a movie, you just sat at home and everything was beamed into your house. It was all the power of the moving image um, from movies, but with the ubiquity of uh, radio. And I think boomer culture, just for that reason, has an extra edge because, like, I mean, so much of when people think about the Beatles, when you're asked to visualize the Beatles or Beatles mania, everyone thinks of the same images of those uh, teenage girls screaming, the airport, you know, when they're uh, disembarking the plane and the girls going crazy, you know, the concerts, the the ties, the performances, Shea Stadium, you know, and um, I think that's something that future generations have a hard time getting out of the shadow of because, I mean, there's more, t even though we still have TV, our, everybody now has their own personal TV. Like back in the days, you had one TV in the whole house and everyone had to watch the same thing. Then you started having multiple TVs in every room. Now people have their own little entertainment world on their phone. And like what Junior's watching or listening to, the rest of the family has no idea. He's just in his room with headphones on. And every family member has this atomized kind of thing. I don't think any future, future generation is going to really be able to have the kind of stranglehold that uh, boomers have. But just in general, boomers just don't want to get off the stage. I, I agree with that, but I'm curious. Do you ever watch TV with your family? Like, how often do you do group TV sessions? Um, when I visit, like, my mom and stuff like that, um, you know, we sit in the basement. Like, for example, Thanksgiving was an example, but... Uh, Mm -hmm. I was thinking yeah, about but, that. Yeah, but this is a couple times a year. It's like a special occasion. Like whereas before. So, what do you guys watch together on at Thanksgiving? What did what was the mutually agreed to show that you guys tuned into? Uh, I think we watched some Netflix 
uh, stand-up specials. Uh, the last thing I watched, like, as a family, believe it or not, I made my mom watch uh, Squid Games, and she actually liked it. Uh, okay, my mom watched it before. I actually haven't watched the last two episodes because I was watching it with someone, and then they went on a work trip, and so it's been very difficult for me to avoid spoilers. Please do not spoil the thing. But yeah, my mom, you know, we when we're when I'm home, we tend to watch reality TV show together shows together. Uh, 90 Day Fiance. She loves to watch TMZ. She loves Harvey. <laughs> and then we also will watch like uh, Outlander. I mean, there's like a category of like mutually agreed to programming. That is, I think, why a lot of these mainstream network shows get so much play, because it's like uh, you're not going to want to watch some stuff with your parents but you can definitely watch anything on cbs with your parents what about you freddie do you do any family hangs well i you know the the thing that immediately uh comes to mind listening to you guys talk about this stuff like it's probably worth from when i first heard the the izzy brothers twist and shout i was then i tried to re-listen to the beatles oh i'm sorry i think i did that by accident i'm like why is t coming in so loud and clear (laughs) (laughs) i i uh like we are probably not like most people in the country in many of our sort of cultural consumption habits. I remember I was absolutely shocked to learn the average, average, the average voter in the 2020 election watched almost six hours of television a day, right? Which is just impossible mm-hmm. to me. Um, but like, yeah, me too. I can't imagine anybody watching that much television. It's a sick, sad world. Not me. I would never do that. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm, I'm not trying to say, but I am saying it like, and also like this is probably like cable and, you know. Um, uh, I, yeah, so I, my girlfriend and I have the shows that we watch. We did watch Squid Game. Uh, Korean is her native language and I am learning and uh, it's so, um, it's, you know, it's useful to me uh, as, a, as a sort of teaching tool as well. And we enjoyed it, um, but like, you know, we're just in the in the position of constantly kind of liking shows and watching a couple episodes and falling out of the show. And I think this gets back to the fire hose of content thing, where like, um, when there's always so much choice, uh, it's difficult to feel invested in any one thing. You know, like, uh, you know, I I have seen every episode of the TV show Martin at least three times, not because I was a big (laughs) Martin fan when I was 11 years old, but because that's what came on after I got out of school on Mm -hmm. Fox and we had like four channels. And so like when there's less options, excuse me, there's fewer options, you know, you sort of, you learn to love things, but I, we don't know. She and I have like a half dozen streaming services, so we don't have to learn to love anything. Uh, which sounds great until like, you know, we're starting our 12th show of the month that we're not going to finish. Right. Like there's, it's so easy to just click off and do something else. So we don't like, like the wires are the good example where that show takes time to get going. That is not an, apparently, cause I am not into it yet. Yeah, it, I gotta it, say it does not like it is, is not super uh, grab you immediately. It's a slow burn. It takes time to get going. If it hadn't been so overwhelmingly critically praised, I probably would have, wouldn't have stuck with it. And like, now I'm looking for excuses to mm-hmm. like stick with a show to give it enough time to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. Although I can't get down with the idea that you had to acclimate yourself to Martin. 
I will say we we were not allowed to watch Martin when we were little because um, it was too crude. We also weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons. But then we moved to, we ended up in Kenya. And to your point, Freddie, there were many fewer options of what to watch on television. But for some reason, in Kenya in the mid-90s, they played Martin. <laughs> so all of those. Favorite all-time best episode is the episode where Gina like makes a sculpture of a butt for some reason. And Martin <laughs> and the boys keep making fun of it. And then finally Gina catches them. That's my favorite one of all time. <laughs> yeah, that that suddenly everything was on on the table when my options were like watching Martin or reruns of The Bold and the Beautiful from 1978. Um, let's take the next caller, Andrew. You're in the queue. Just unmute yourself when you're ready. Hey, can you hear me? All right. I can. How you doing, Andrew? I'm doing excellent. It's uh, cool to see people on call and love your shows in general. It's nice to be able to say what's up once a couple of weeks. <laughs> well, thank you, Andrew. What did yeah. you have to say about all of this, Mishigas? Yeah, I actually, I really appreciate this conversation in a political lens. And I think that um, on my mind has been sort of maybe a comparison in the ear of the Beatles to Jimi Hendrix. And kind of my thoughts are, I really liked Leslie's uh, commentary. I didn't finish your episode yet, but I plan to later on. And I think that the the con. Uh, the concept or context in this scenario of kind of a mass media prop up of the Beatles, not only at the time, but in subsequent decades, it has to do with, in my, in my view, capital and cultural control, right? Because from a purely capital um, based kind of appraisal, there would be no reason why not to prop up somebody like, Jimi Hendrix just as much as the Beatles. I mean, at the time, he was wildly popular. I think also to Trevor's mention of the Isley Brothers, you know, Jimi Hendrix had to leave the country. He was playing with the Isley Brothers. He was playing basically anywhere he could sign a contract, but not getting any of the um, promotion that the industry had to offer because he was black. And my guess, well, black and indigenous, but also my guess is because he has a big kind of cultural narrative to his music that promotes peace and kind of integration in some ways, and also also promotes a lot of these big blues stars. Like, I would not really know who Muddy Waters is or listen to him were it not for listening to Jimi Hendrix. And I think that, as you see, you know, there's obviously always going to be a re-release of everything because it's cheaper to um, repackage and distribute the same thing that's already been produced. You don't have to put the same investment into it. You know that there's already a captive audience for it. Uh, but I think that now the reason we don't see this same kind of uplifting of Jimi Hendrix or having his family on talk shows or whatever, but you still see fucking Ringo and Paul McCartney on all the late night talk shows that my parents watch still. I think it really has to do with a sort of narrative control and a cultural control, because if it were just for dollars, I wouldn't see any reason why not to prop up Jimi Hendrix or even like Pink Floyd. They're another white band from the time that was wildly popular in the same era uh, but you still hear more of a critique of like war and surveillance and uh, cultural atomization in their music that I just don't think the uh, the ruling elite as a general class of people really want to promote. So I think that's kind of my, my general two cents. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Andrew. I was on... Um... Andrew Sullivan, another Andrew's podcast uh, six weeks ago or so, 
And we ended up talking about race a lot on that episode in a way that we didn't on the bad faith episode because you know we kind of got out of our system. But in that episode, he he was trying to wrap up the conversation, which had gotten a little contentious, by ending on a positive note by telling me how much he valued you know black cultural contributions, and he brought up hip hop and stuff and asked me what I thought about it, and a little bit because I was being uh, a contrarian, and a little bit because this is how I feel. I said, well, I'm not willing to say that basically all of the problems and ills that have been heaped upon black people are okay because people like our music. Also, the music that has been vaunted has been selected, to your point, that there are a lot of people who know a lot more about the history of hip-hop music who will who have made the argument that conscious rap, rap with a positive uh, message, you know, that was very popular originally, and there were plenty of people who had an interest and appetite for it, but it was the quote-unquote gangster rap that got pushed to the forefront. And that it was very purposeful and that people are, you know, antagonist, you know, the powers that be are very antagonistic toward revolutionary music. And you have people like Boots Riley who've been beating this drum for a long time. And so I think that that's a good point that even outside of the racial context, there has always been a effort to suppress so-called conscious music or message music. Freddie, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I just got to say that the idea that Jimi Hendrix is not sold by the nostalgia industry is some wild shit. He is a he is a dorm room poster all star. I mean, he was a character in the recent Bill and Ted movie. I mean, I, he is like the black guy beloved by white boomers, right? Like, or, or same thing with like with someone like uh, uh, like Bob Marley, right? Like, I think that those are. I think that the, the critique you can make is that there are black figures that were anointed by that kind of industry who sort of serve the role of the black figures within it. But I, I think Jimi Hendrix is, uh, is pretty well established as like a figure sort of beloved by this nostalgia industry and the, and the boomers in general. I, I think that, um, I think that the issue is like, look, there is a uh, chicken and egg situation with some, with a band like the Beatles, because Yes, they are anointed by marketing and they are sold by the music industry very heavily, but they're marketed and sold because they've sold just an insane number of albums. Right. And uh, I I mean, the thing is, like, the good news with all this stuff is like, look, like um, at the end of the day, there's the thing itself. Right. Like you can put on the on the music and listen to it and you either like it or you don't. And I think the, the, the thing to say is just that like whatever else cynical we might want to say about a band like the Beatles and whether you like them or not, you know, everybody's opinion is as good as mine. Um, People keep discovering them and falling in love with them. And there's something about their music that people, it really moves people, including young people. And so I do think that like, absolutely there are, there's industries in place that uh, generate a ton of money in that sort of mold and shape what is perceived to be uh, like the sort of classics of our culture. But at the same time, like at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's a kid right now who's like 10 years old, who's hearing uh, Eleanor Rigby for the first time. And it's a really big deal to that girl. Right. And like, uh, again, like we said that the stakes are low. I think that um, it it is possible to be a little too cynical and to sort of forget that at the core of all of this, there's stuff that just moves people. You know. Uh, I wanted to add something about the Jimi Hendrix and Bob Marley thing. I think, in a weird way, I think 
both of you are right in that. Uh, I think Bob, like for example, with Bob Marley, he is very beloved by white boomers, but it's a very narrow, watered-down version of him from the compilation Legend. So it's it's weird in that he's kind of overexposed, but what most people know when they know Bob Marley is like the most watered down stuff that like your average uh, Jamaican Bob Marley fan or like, you know, whatever things are his lamest songs. And I think Jimi Hendrix is something kind of similar going on in that there's a a lot funkier deep cut, you know, Jimi Hendrix that kind of gets lost in the lionization uh, and the and the white boomerized version of him. So I think they're kind of tricky examples in that they're both overexposed, but also like a lot of their best music is not really um, that commonly known and is uh, underrated at the same time. They're like those few groups that somehow end up being over and underrated at at once. Like Martin Luther King. <laughs> yeah, I yeah I, I shudder I shudder to think of the number of people who have a just completely distorted idea of what reggae is because. The only reggae they ever hear is Bob Marley, and the only Bob Marley they ever hear is Legend, which is just the ballads. It's just a he's a guy. He's a guy who wrote like two hundred songs or something like that, and he's defined by like the twenty ballads that are on that one record. And so there's this there's just generations of people walking around who have no idea what what his sound sounds like because they've never explored beyond that album. Yeah, and people don't realize that it's not a, a an album, but a compilation, and it was put together by the Blackwells, particularly to uh, win over, like, white people and break into, like, the Western market. So those 20 ballads were chosen specifically because the Blackwells thought this is what um, will get white American people into Bob Marley. And, and well, dra- drag me for filth because I love me some legends. And the two albums that got played in our car the most when I was growing up in Kenya, two tapes my father bought off the side of the road from his ni- in his 1976 Volkswagen van were the Legends cassette tape and the best of Aretha Franklin, who, as you know, if you listen to the show, has the best rendition, in my opinion, I'm Eleanor of Eleanor Rigby. <laughs> You know who else has a has a wonderful rendition of Eleanor Rigby? Is fair, fair enough. Like this is this is what I'm saying. When I I grew up hearing this version of the song, I completely understand why Beatles fans would be appalled that I prefer this version. But it is so different in spirit from the original that the original just there's no place in my mind for it anymore. And I don't I expect anybody to agree with me on that one. But when I tell you I was just scandalized and horrified to my core when I heard it for the first time. Oh boy. Okay, let's get through some of these um through some of these questions. Let's take Omar. Omar, Omar, I think you've been in here before, huh? This isn't your first rodeo. You just gotta press unmute. Oh hey. Yeah, yeah, I'm there a repeat go. offender. I'm a huge fan of huge fan <laughs> as you can tell. Um but this was another great episode. So Leslie made a great point that I had been thinking about previously. He said something about along the lines that kids and parents kind of are all listening to the same music now. And I don't know. I just find that really curious mm-hmm. because you always think about this question about the counterculture, especially in the context of the Beatles. Like you think about the hippie movement, flower power. And it just leaves me thinking like whether or not we have a counterculture 
and whether or not counterculture even has any kind of role for the left in general. I think Andrew mentioned previously, the, the previous caller, um, bringing up the issue of how like a lot of these cultural movements get appropriated to, um, you know, it's kind of like a way of, of I don't know, it's just inconvenient for the masses, the way the, the, the system appropriates these kind of movements. And I'm just curious because when you see that kids and parents kind of listen to the same music nowadays, it's like everybody listens to the same rappers, same R&B, even, you know, I would hear like adults and kids kind of using the same kind of slang also, which for me culturally is like, it's a homogenous culture. So there's no room for counterculture from what I'm seeing at the moment. I'm previously, you know, counterculture for me means like the beat poet movement, like the hippies, like I mentioned, the punk new wave in the 80s and then like 90s grunge and hip hop, I also think was part of the counterculture movement. But then if these are counterculture movements, ultimately, do we think that they just get reappropriated and used against us? Or, or I don't know, do they really have some kind of, um, some kind of momentum behind them and, and potential that, for changes that we can implement in our society? Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, mm-hmm. basically, you mentioned earlier, Brie, that your mom also says, like, all her music and all her tastes are now basically, like, the mainstream, which I think is kind of goes towards that point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just if counterculture even matters, basically, along the lines of the question. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Although I will say, I know that I'm not typical, but I uh, also listen to the same thing my mother listens to, partly just because I'm deeply uncool and partly because I grew up abroad. <laughs> but my um, Spotify rankings had Luther Vandross as my number one listen <laughs> of the years, which is neither here nor there. I will say that the Lil Nas X album was also on there, but mostly because I there just like go. to work out to it a lot. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, what do you guys think? Um, are, is, is counterculture dead? But like, what would what would counterculture be counter to now? You know what I'm saying? Like, there has to be a mass culture for there to be something that counterculture is counter to. I mean, I you know, maybe in ten years I'll look back and I'll think this is a stupid opinion. I mean, I, I very often do, but um, I can you know, if you say think of a 1953 outfit, I can do it. Think of a 1963 outfit, I can do it. 73, I can do it. 83, I can do it. 93, I can do it. Like clothes, think, you mean? Yeah, clothes, right? You can't think I, of what the kids are wearing these days? Because I can tell you. Because well, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm trying to copy it because I'm uh, in denial about my age. <laughs> I guess the thing for me is I have a hard... I, I can think of like a 2003 outfit. But like if you ask me like what, how was this, what was the style in 2013? The way that like bell bottoms and you know, and like big natural hair and fringe, et cetera, was the style in the sixties. Right. Or the way that like you think mm-hmm. about the nineties with the giant jeans um, and uh, you know, big formless white shirts and like, uh, or, or, or the, you know, the hairstyles. I, to me, I don't have a picture of like what those, what re- more recent eras look like in my do you think we're just too close to 2013? Because I would say 2013 is a liminal year. Like you picked exactly the year. Like if you said 2008, I could describe the J. Crew Argyle brightly colored kind of almost preppy thing that was going on. If you go like five years earlier, I can describe all of that kind of Disney Channel butterfly clip, frosted eye, 
crop tops, low-waisted pants, big clunky flip-flops. Like, I can do it. 2013 is just a little tricky because it's right between kind of like the preppy. And there's class there's class valences to all the things that I'm saying too, right? And regional differences and stuff. But that's right between the preppiness well, of the 2007, 2008 era and kind of what we're in right now, which is a very more minimalist, um, high mom jeans, some elements of the 90s, that 90s minimalism. Yeah. I mean, maybe the, it's also, I think there's a gender issue here, which is that like um, women are kind of forced to pay more attention to clothes than men are. Um, I mean, I'll be it's able true. to just wear a white t-shirt and blue jeans for the rest of my life. Uh, but I think women are sort of <laughs> have to pay more attention to like the cut of their jeans, you know, where I, I never even fucking think about it. Right. But I mean, I may or may not have something to say about that fact that men maybe should pay more attention to the cut of jeans, but that's neither here nor there. Look, I have to spend way too many Patreon bucks on mock neck shirts in different colors, so I can have a ro- rotating wardrobe for this show. And I just feel like that is I, the female tax. <laughs> I, can, I can see what Freddie's saying, though, in that uh, you, you men can get away with not. I mean, it's, it's appreciated if men do, but men can. I mean, I've seen some like horribly dressed men, you know, and they'll get like a nice, beautiful, stylish woman. And I think it's a little harder for. Yeah, a woman. I date many horribly dressed men. Sorry. What's that? I said, yes, I date many horribly dressed men. <laughs> Messy kings. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, I feel like we definitely like, get more grace in that in that uh, department. Than, than... Yeah, but what about this point? What do you make of this point, though, T, about the, the counterculture? Do you think, regardless of my ability to nitpick and say I could identify certain style trends now in, at any given point, do you think that because of uh, mass media potentially and the fact that there are so many diffuse microcultures. Like if you go on uh, Twitter or TikTok, there's like dark academia and all fairy stuff and like all this stuff, like the, the zennials have come up with all these um, cottage core, like the fact that there's a, um, a such a different differentiation of options contemporaneous to each other means that it's difficult for there to be anything concrete to go against. Do you think that that's accurate? I think that's a big part of it. I don't think that's all of it, but I think it's a big contributor. I think another thing, too, is that I think you need a little bit of distance from a time to really see what the style was. I think it's like as someone who grew up in the 80s, um, I feel like growing up, you didn't really see how 80s the 80s was until like 10 years after. And then you look and you're like, wow, we're really on some shit. Like, what, Mm -hmm. what even was that? And there were different things in the 80s, too. I mean, there were preps in the 80s, and there were punk kids in the 80s, and there were kind of like a grungy, there was a throwback 50s thing that was happening with the 80s and the Greece. I mean, there was a lot of different options then, too. Yeah, and the idea of, like, the decade, I think, is a flawed construct anyway, because I feel like if you look at, like, 1981 versus 1988, like, they're not really the same aesthetic, really. Like, 1981 still looks like the late 70s, you know, like... uh, so I think like the construct of just because mm-hmm. the year has an eight in it, it makes it part of one giant movement, I think is, uh, you know, kind of flawed in and of itself. Like I would say like 1981 to 1986 is probably more of a solid, cohesive aesthetic, you know, than like, you know, than trying to compare 88 in there, which I think is when the 90s kind of was starting. But yeah, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. But I think also... It's very hard to understand. Like, for example, the 2000s, 
I didn't really think the 2000s was such a strong, defined look until I recently started watching stuff from the 2000s. And I'm like, why does no one's pants fit? Why does every pair of pants have like five inches too much of him? <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, the honor, the, the sign of honor was to have your him so stepped on that it was tattered and brown and ragged and kind of dragging. Yes. Have you guys ever seen, have you ever seen the photo? It's, it's just, it's the photo of the draftees from the 2003 NBA draft on top. And it's the, the 2013 NBA draftees <laughs> on the bottom. And the, I mean, the, that's, that's LeBron's year. And the clothes those guys were wearing, you could fit yeah. both of my legs down the pant legs of these guys. <laughs> and then by, 20, by 2013, like it's everything is tailored and tight and like super, mm-hmm. and super well cut. It's such a fun. Only Brown's got his little cute suit outfit with the shorts that uh, caused all of that gay panic. <laughs> you know that famous meme where he gets up and takes his briefcase and walks off disgruntled. Oh yeah, that I remember a long that way, one. baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I should say there's been some interaction on Twitter as you've been talking just now. Uh, there's a gentleman named Brian uh, whose tag is at Beach Boy Leftist who tweeted the Isley Brothers version of Twist and Shout blows. T. Do we have thoughts? I mean, he's got his right. I, I, I mean, if I don't give him the space to uh, dislike what he dislikes, then I'll be like those Beatles fans who did not give me <laughs> space. But I will say I did not understand it. <laughs> <laughs> Which version was used in Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Uh I feel like he was doing the Beatles version. I mean, I feel like most people did the Beatles version just because it's not, it's hard for people to picture this today who grew up, you know, uh, like younger millennial and younger, but it wasn't easy to find music that you didn't own in your house. It wasn't, if it wasn't on the radio and it wasn't in your house, you had to like really like dig in the crates. Like I used to have to go to like, uh, radio station uh, sales where they were like, you know, selling all their back stuff and I would get a lot of my vinyl and old music like that, but it was, used to not be easy. Uh, now, like, even corporations like Amazon, you can find the most obscure stuff. Like, you used to have to go to, like, these weird uh, hole-in-the-wall record places to get uh, things like that, or Spotify. So, um, most people, even black people, I think, below a certain age, like as a Gen Xer, uh, we grew up listening to the Beatles version. It took me a while to. Yeah, that is the Beatles version in um in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, in fact, uh, Salt and Pepper, the rap group, uh, did a remake of Twist and Shout, and their remake was the Beatles version. That was the version that that we kind of knew. It wasn't easy to find the Isley Brothers version unless you have a parent who had it on vinyl or something. One that's thing old, that's, that's uh, old Isley Brothers, not even seventies Isley Brothers, you know. One thing that might be worth mentioning is that uh, at the w- when the Beatles were like in their early career period, it was really common for it to be written into the contract that like half of their albums had to be covers where the songs were pulled from the catalog of the comp- of the record label that they were performing for, just because it kept costs low. Mm. So. Uh, part mm-hmm. yeah, part of the reason why so many of their early songs are covers is because like it's it was like super super common back then. That's really interesting. Um, I also just want to shout out one other person who has um, a lot of feelings on the internet. It's a man named Daniel George 
who people have subsequently uncovered is in a Beatles cover band who's very disgruntled. Daniel George tweeted, Bernie Sanders, former press secretary, dislikes the Beatles and now generates Patreon dollars, accusing them of cultural appropriation. Truly, the 2020 campaign never had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what uh, was a downfall of Bernie. Your <laughs> hatred of uh, the Beatles, which wasn't even a hatred. Just so I, I like the Beatles. <laughs> it's so funny. And okay, I won't. I won't get into it. But um, but but, but, but you know what's funny? And, and Lindsay brought this up a lot. And he tweeted some quotes. I think the Beatles themselves are not uh, adverse to the idea that they were culturally appropriating. Yeah, we didn't even critique them for cultural appropriation. I use the word appropriation just literally, like not in a critical way. And also, like it's it's truly fine. Like I actually wrote a kind of viral article on cultural appropriation. It's the second thing I ever wrote for Current Affairs magazine, in which I'm very measured about this, and I'm talking about the left overreaches with cultural appropriation, and how we should be talking about this with a more materialist lens, and actually be interrogating why we live in a society where. You know, black women are fired for wearing their hair natural, but Kim Kardashian can make money off of cornrows. It's not that I'm mad at Kim Kardashian. It's the society that I, that is treating the black women that way. That's the problem. And stop trying to get me to feel some kind of way about Kim Kardashian's hair. I truly don't care. You know, it's not the I issue think, that white cultural... people make Mexican food. It's that Mexican people have a harder time raising funds to start a restaurant because of the way the world is, you know, because of the way capital is concentrated in certain communities. So, like, I'm not I'm abstractly mad at a white person making a burrito, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think cultural appropriation has become like such a pejorative and almost like a slur. But in the most literal definition, like uh, there's a lot of great music that is technically cultural appropriation. It's not like in and of itself. Well, some people, to be fair, some people on the Internet really do reduce cultural appropriation to nobody white should ever accept anything that a, a non-white person yeah yeah right but, I mean, and that's in, silly in the literal sense in what you're using it uh, the beatles are uh, cultural appropriation like they said that they listen to blues records and things from the delta and skiffle and all this stuff non-stop and that was their rebellion growing up music and they all tried to um recreate it i mean that's cultural appropriation it's a different culture than yours and you're trying to um make it your own and i don't think that in and of itself, I think it all comes down to a how good you are at it, like if you're butchering it or not, and b um, if you're the power dynamic, like like you know, like it doesn't really bother me so much that the Beatles uh, tried mm-hmm. to do John Lee Hooker's music so much as that you know while they were blowing up, John Lee Hooker was an elevator operator. You know what I mean? Exactly, exactly, and that's I mean the the article opens. You know, the trouble with Elvis's version of Hound Dog is not that it's bad. It's that it doesn't make any goddamn sense. Big Mama Thornton's original 1952 version is the song of, uh, of the song of Sleazy and Defiant. It's a bluesy. Like, she, it, it doesn't fit the person. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, what happened to her in her life um, as, as compared to Elvis. And I'll, maybe I'll, I'll tweet this out if people are interested. But um, we've already been going for uh, over an hour and a half. So I want to bring in Darren, I think Andrew and Omar we heard from, and then Faust. And then I think we can start to wrap things up. I have maybe one more final question to each of you after we take these two questions. Oh, and Tucker, sorry, go ahead and unmute yourself, Tucker. I forgot you're already in the queue. Uh, hi. Uh, I had something to mention about the Beatles, but I just completely forgot. Like, cause like, I'm <laughs> sorry about like, that. I'm You've from been Arkansas, in the- so they're not really that significant. Cause like, it's mainly culture, like country down here. So you can say you don't like the Beatles mm. and no one really cares. But 
Who can't you say you don't like? Who 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 is the equivalent in Arkansas? Johnny, Johnny Cash. Cash. Yeah, yeah, just because he's from Arkansas. Like when it when it comes, to I've Johnny got Cash, a friend you gotta like Johnny Cash. One of my best friends from college is from Arkansas, a black guy from Pine Bluff, and you cannot like besmirch Johnny Cash. He has had a Johnny Cash poster on his wall. I feel like I only know about Johnny Cash because of my friend Jeffrey. So <laughs> I knew the answer to that question was going to be. Yeah, but go ahead, Tucker. Yeah, but uh, you did mention K-pop a couple times in this and then Gangnam Style. And I just wanted to point out, because I was in high school during this period and I did help K-pop come into the culture, there was a K-pop band before Psy with Gangnam Style and it was the Wonder Girls and they had a movie on Nickelodeon. And then in the summer, Gangnam Style came out and then it blew up. So I think that had the something to do with it, but... Mainly, I did uh, just wanted to call in and because I know you're a big Medicare for all supporter uh, and you do have problems with uh, the Democratic Party not doing anything federally. Indeed. And (laughs) to say the least. But in like I called a few weeks back and talked about ballot measures and in Maine, they are pushing for a universal health care system in Maine. And right now they are collecting signatures and they need uh, 65,000 mm-hmm. uh, to get it on the ballot. And I just want to get that out there because I know that you are supportive of that. And people listening are likely to be supportive of that. And if you live in Maine, get involved, sign a petition, like help get universal health care. Th- thank you for that. Cause I know that, the petition effort in Washington ended up getting ended. I don't know the details of why they stopped the collection efforts, but it was obviously disappointing to a lot of people who've been working hard in that regard. So if there's someone in particular that you think would be good to come on the pod and talk about that or join a live stream and talk about a lot of the issues that fall through the cracks because we're doing more long-form interviews these days, let me know and I'd be happy to try I'll to probably help say raise Lisa awareness. Savage. Lisa Savage. She ran for uh, Senate in last cycle. All right. Made a note. I really appreciate you keeping our keeping our focus and our eye on the ball. I've actually pulled up also this group you're talking about, and now that I look at this thumbnail from the video, it is familiar. These like I've definitely seen a video with these girls that've got kind of like a a sixties vibe, like dancing at old timey microphones and like beehives and stuff. And you're right. I, I completely remember this group. Good call. Uh, let's see. Uh, Darren, I think we already spoke to you, so I'm going to skip over to um, Faust. Did that work? It did not work. Oops, I made Faust a speaker. Sorry, Faust, but go ahead and speak. Can you hear me now? Can you unmute yourself? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Go ahead. Hey, uh, love the show. Can't believe I got through. Um, I'm probably in the bad class because I, I do it. I guess when I heard that, like, lots of white people love the Beatles, I'm like, oh, no, the Beatles are like farmer's markets and podcasts and farm to table restaurants. They're just a white thing now. (laughs) Now I have to be ashamed. But of course, I don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed. There's nothing go wrong with the things. I can still go to a co-op things. and buy some, <laughs> right. you know, lentils, right? <laughs> right. I guess, but they, uh, one thing I, I, I think is different, and I forget which guest said that there's probably a group just as talented the Beatles in my neighborhood that just aren't marketed as well. 
I guess I feel like the Beatles were pretty decent songwriters and they had all that time they worked together as a unit in Hamburg or in Germany that helped them gel in a way that Mm -hmm. four kids in my neighborhood haven't yet. So they had all of that behind them and they had lots of good folks behind them working for them. And, you know, it's not just the Beatles documentary. I actually only watched it because of your show. I watched, began to watch it, but of course I would love to watch the footage if it existed. And I'm sure it doesn't of John Coltrane working out giant steps. I mean, we have that on the box set where I can hear no one can play the changes, but, and I think that Mm. similar to what you were saying when you're trying to say it was magical, well, it's magical because you know, this became these songs, just like mm-hmm. I was listening to those rehearsal tapes of Giant Steps. It's magical because mm-hmm. I know that's Giant Steps that we're going to get out of it. Um, but I do suppose that there was part of me that was like, "Yeah, what, the Beatles aren't this great t- cultural touchstone that we all agree on? What are you going to tell me next? That the law is just something that a judge wakes up and decides is what I, is the I case? I appreciate that. <laughs> so... I really appreciate your emotional honesty here, Faust, and like owning that, because I think that that's helpful to move the the conversation forward. And I think it's a perfectly legitimate emotional response to have on two levels. One, because there is a culture, there is like a vibe that happens where something gets labeled as white and then the implication is that it's bad. And I think that a lot of people read that into Leslie's statement or like it's like undeserved or something like that. And I think it can both be true that there's a confluence of like, luck and talent and being in the right place at the right time that lead to a phenomenon like the Beatles and marketing, right. That lead to a phenomenon like the Beatles and just acknowledging that there was a marketing component or a timing component doesn't mean that there also isn't a talent component and that there isn't something special and unique about this combination of people, but for them, it wouldn't have happened. And sometimes I think that pointing out, you know, uh, certain critiques are taken as like, you know, something that is like one of many factors can be taken as a, a, a holistic indictment. And I don't judge people for jumping to that conclusion because many times that is what is meant by critics. But I don't think that's what we were doing on the podcast. No, I guess the only other thing, I, uh, quick, two quick other things is it was actually Quest mm-hmm. Love that got me to take Ringo seriously as a drummer. And I also... Huh. What is Quest said about it? Quest had like some video where he tried to show how the stuff that Ringo was doing was pretty unique and interesting. And Oh, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying Quest was saying Ringo's the greatest drummer ever, but I think he was, you know, kind of defending Ringo from that you could have put any drummer in there, or Pete Best would have been a better drummer. I guess the mm-hmm. other thing I would say, though I took some offense initially when I heard um Quincy Jones comments. I also need to remember Quincy worked with some awesome cats all the time. <laughs> The people Quincy worked with were at a very high level. Mm-hmm. And as your guests noted, the Beatles knew they weren't at that high level of musicianship. That's not what it was about. Even, you know, I think George Harrison was embarrassed by the sitar part that he had learned, you know, when he was studying with Ravi Shankar. And, I mean, so I guess that shows that they were at least aware of <clears throat> their talents and the level they had them. So anyway, I just thought I would pipe in and love the show. Thanks for uh having me talk. Thank you for that fast. I really do appreciate it. That was really, um, I think a helpful addition. Darren, I'm going to, am I wrong to believe that you, you spoke? Do go ahead and unmute yourself. Hey, no, I haven't spoken. How are you doing? Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Darren. Uh, How are you doing? I'm good. I'm well, thank you. Good, good, good. I haven't listened to the latest episode yet, but I just started listening to you uh, right after you were on Andrews, you know, uh, Sullivan's, you know, Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I wouldn't say we're politically uh, opposite, but we're very near there. But I think you're great. I think you're very interesting. And I think you're probably at the head of the line uh, of uh, media figures who can come across the aisle and improve our conversation. I appreciate that, Darren. That's a, that means a lot. That's, I think, such an important quality to have in these moments. And I'm kind of humbled by the idea that I might be able to move into that space and be helpful in that regard. So thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. That said, I wanted to say something annoying, if it's okay. Go for it. You've earned it. Uh, the whole conversation, and again, remember, I haven't listened to the latest episode, so I'm sorry if I'm uh, out of line here. But the, the whole conversation has been pretty negative. And we're talking about the Beatles, a band that so many people love. About 30 minutes ago, Freddie uh, really stood out by saying, you know, somewhere there's a 10-year-old girl here in Eleanor Rigby for the first time, and it's a big deal to her. But that stood out because it was someone saying something positive. Uh, we're talking about music. We're talking about the Beatles. Music is the most beautiful thing in the world. It brings people together. So, uh, well, look, I, I like that point, and it actually dovetails in what was going to be my final question, but maybe I'll go ahead and ask it now of our guests. What is your favorite Beatles song? Here we go. <laughs> uh, I, I well, you know, I like the bootleg shit that nobody else has heard, you know, <laughs> I like the, uh, the real rare shit that your audience oh, doesn't yeah? recognize. So, <laughs> no, um, uh, I, it's probably Dear Prudence off of the White Album, uh, which is just an absolutely lovely tune uh, that everybody should listen to. All right. T, do you have one? Um, it's kind of tough for me to say. I'm going to queue up Dear Prudence right now. Yeah, um, let me think. I, I would say probably, I mean, this is not one of their more genius considered songs but i like the song uh you have to hide your love away because it just sounds like a really cool um nice. like british or irish drinking song oh this is lovely Yeah, that's lovely. I feel like I don't want to say mine now because mine are just going to be like basic cuts off of the one album or whatever. <laughs> um, but I'm going to take those recommendations. Remind me again, T, of what yours was. Uh, you have to hide your love away. I, I don't think it's a full name of the song. I think the song's name is, is it, is it just called no. Hide Your Love Away? I think I think that's right. Yeah, it's 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 widely believed. So uh, their manager uh, was gay at a time when obviously you couldn't be out and gay. And many people believe that that song is John Lennon's expression of sympathy to him. I can see them laugh at me. And I hear them say, Hey, you've got to hide your away. All right. We have our last caller. Jason, take us out. What do you have to say to us? I hope that satisfied you, by the way. 
Darren, and have a little bit of positivity. I think you're right. We need to take a moment to appreciate that there's some pretty beautiful jams coming out of these four dudes. Oh, oh wait. Can I, get, can I get one more positive thing about the Beatles before uh, Jason speaks? Yeah. Uh, because, the, because the topic was, are the Beatles overrated? Like, you know, I didn't want to come in and say everything I like about the Beatles because that's not the topic. But I will say, I think they revolutionized the concept of an album as a um, distinct, uh, you know, discrete piece of art as in as opposed to a collection of singles they aren't the first person to i mean they aren't the first group to treat albums as something you know serious and complete as a work of art but i think they pushed it you know way beyond uh anyone else before them for sure Oops, sorry, I was muted myself. They are to music what Deep Space Nine was to serialized uh, television. <laughs> don't worry about it. No one's, I don't expect you to get the reference. Uh, Jason. The Maquis are everywhere, Brianna. <laughs> exactly. Freddie knows, Freddie, I didn't know that you were a Trekkie like that. I'm not. My, my sister is a huge one, so I sort of absorbed it by uh, osmosis. Well, that's the best way to get into it. I mean, I became a Trekkie because my older brother was a Trekkie and my mom grew up. She was real skinny and her dad used to call her bones and not to make everything about race. But a lot of black folks really loved Star Trek in the 1960s because in my grandfather's parlance, it's one of the only shows on TV where the black woman isn't playing a maid. And, you know, they you know saw themselves in it and were very proud of her. And I'm sure everyone's heard this story about how she wanted to quit because conditions on set weren't the best. William Shatner's a little bit of a personality, uh, but Martin Luther King called her up and said, you cannot quit. This means too much for the race. And so she (laughs) persevered. Um, At any rate, Jason. Yeah, I'm so so glad you didn't say she persisted. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll 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 leave that for a Mina Harris t-shirt. Can you hear me? I can't hear you, Jason. Um, what you're saying is hilarious because I just recently watched the Living Color skit with the Wrath of Farrakhan where he's, you know, encouraging Lieutenant or the rebel. Um, is there really a skit oh, like that? Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful in Living uh, Color skit. Uh, we also weren't allowed to watch in Living Color. Stark <laughs> contrast to MLK's, um, you know, words of cajoling her to, to, to stay the course. But Long, Long, Long is a beautiful song. Beautiful song by the Beatles. Long, long, long is, I mean, you long, can't, long, long. can't make a better pop song than that. Um, now, hold on. Now. I know you're... Oh. Well, we're going to hear it long, now. Long, long? Beautiful song. Now, hold on, though. Mm-hmm. There is a line you can trace from the Beatles to Ronald Reagan to Kanye West in terms of a collective movement that confirms American delusion, and it persists for years, and the emperor has no clothes. Let's start with this. The members of the Beatles are absolutely embarrassing. John Lennon left. John <laughs> Lennon abandoned that? his family. He married a complete fucking kook. Who? Who? I mean, we still have to suffer NPR pieces about how Yoko Ono's album's a genius. She's a moron. Um, Paul McCartney made <laughs> strong. Oh wait, wait, time out. Paul McCartney okay, made mu- music in the seventies with the little love. I mean, some of the worst music you've ever heard. He got swindled out of his fortune by a one-legged hooker. <laughs> like, Jason, like, Jason, let's do it. Let's be sex positive. <laughs> no, if you want to talk about overrated, they make move. They make music for children and small animals. 
I want to hold your hand. Will you still meet me when I'm 64? <laughs> I mean, this is really bad music. This is no, no, seriously. What other great band do you know where every time someone covers their stuff, it's better? Every time, even Joe Cocker I mean, with the his black soul came out. <laughs> he, he, he made a hit. He made this song have have feeling. It, it itself was a light FM song, and was somehow better than the Beatles song. We're talking about one of the most overrated, unconscionably persistent bands of all time on jukeboxes across America with white people like Reaganites swaying with their eyes closed, really worshiping their mothers and fathers. Music. <laughs> it's just the whitest music I've ever heard. It's absolute trash. Jesus. All right. Well, so much for that little bit of positivity, but uh, you certainly did make me giggle. So no, but <laughs> long, long, long is a wonderful song. All right, let's let's hear let's hear it for long, long, long. It's been a long, long, long time. The estate of George Harrison is sending you a check for $200,000. <laughs> this is fair right use. I asked the call-in people, like, can I play a little music? Do they have a rules about this? And they said, go ahead. We'll deal with it when it happens. But I'm going to call this 15 seconds of fair use. And uh, any damages will be de minimis because uh, what is this? Who Like the, th- the 35 of us here, what are they going to say the damages were? All right. Um, I feel like this is the same Darren. Are there like three Darrens in the chat? I'm gonna, Darren. I'm gonna cue you up, but I'm pretty sure that we already heard from you, and so I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the same, Darren. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna call the it for the night. Did any of you guys have any last thoughts before we um, cue out tonight? A one-legged hooker. Yeah, he just lost his. Okay, Jason. Jason, I'm gonna have to kick kick you out, but thank you for your contribution. <laughs> just listen to the shit that you like, man. You know, just just listen to the stuff that you like, and you, we all know that there's stuff that we play in our room alone that no one knows that we're listening to. And that's what we really like. So if you like the Beatles, cool. If you don't, no big deal. But we should all take this shit less personally because it's not our personality. It's just the stuff that we like. Freddie, what's your number one Spotify? What was your year in Spotify top? So I am not a Spotify dude. Um, but How did I know you were going to say that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm currently looking at my, like, hi-fi kind of setup um my number one uh uh artist uh this year was probably uh the band sleep which is a stoner metal band that probably nobody uh else likes in this call-in room but me all right thumbs up for sleek if you like sleek uh what about you t any final comments and also i want to know your top your spotify topper um my final comment is i feel like similar to what freddie said you know like what you like, and let people like what they like. I only get upset um, as far as like what people say about the takes about music or movies or TV. If they disagree with me and they actually get something fundamentally wrong, they just say this thing sucked because it was pro-war and the, the movie is clearly anti-war. That's the only thing that gets me upset is when your difference of opinion is based on you actually not knowing what you're talking about. But if you've got your informed 
op- opinion and you've mm. given it a shot and you don't like the Izzy Brothers version. I mean, I don't know what really it's to argue with you about as opposed to, hey, that's your right. Everybody likes what they like. So I feel like, you know, give people the grace to dislike the things that you um, like as long as it's an informed, uh, thought out opinion, not trolling or based on not knowing what you're talking about. And my number one song by Spotify was Kerosene by Eve Toomer. Oh, you guys are really, we're in different lands. Kerosene by Eve Toomer. Okay. Thumbs up if you guys know what that is about. All right. I see some thumbs up. You're not alone. Neither of you are alone in this. Oh, I spelled that completely wrong. Eve's Toomer. Got it. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining today. Before you leave, one of the cool things about Colin is that you can make little clips to circulate on social media of the conversation we've had here. So you all know what it's like. You listen to an hour and a half podcast and then you're telling your friend to listen to it, but you're like, don't remember the exact time marker and there's no way for the, to just send them the clip that you wanted them to hear. Colin has kind of solved that problem by be, this with this highlight feature. Now, ostensibly, I should be making highlights and circulating them on social media, but I get a little overwhelmed by all of the posting that I have to do as a solo entrepreneur. So if you make a highlight of a part of this conversation, maybe you spoke and asked a question and you want to highlight that on your timeline, I will share your highlight because it makes my job a lot easier. So if there was one part of this that you really liked, you thought was really spicy, go ahead and help me out by making a highlight. It will show up for me on my page and I will push it to all of my socials and i would very much appreciate that and i will play us out i think as the gentleman's name was jason to jason's suggestion which was this living color wrath of conskit i want to thank you all very much for joining us and as always keep the faith thank you a special thank you to freddie and t for joining me for the substantive conversation I'm picking up some strange signals. Something about intergalactic oppressors, sir. Captain, intruders are approaching the bridge, sir. Wait, did you? I did mute myself. Spock. Mm. The white supremacists don't want the wrath of Farrakhan to come out. By St. Vincent. <laughs> I, now that I see this, I have seen it. No. Thank you. <laughs> what do you want? I've come to warn your crew. Warn your crew. Of their enslavement. Enslavement. Aboard this vessel. That's poppycock. These people are perfectly free to do anything they want. It is that same lie that kept Elvis the king, that made that poor child Latoya Jackson think she could sing. <laughs> it is that same lie that's got white boys rapping and the fat boys acting. Hey, mister, you can come in here and talk to me like that. Oh, get me softly, come in. Yes, Captain. Oh, my Nubian princess. <laughs> How long have you placed his cause? I watch the show every week, and all I see is the back of your nappy wig.
Did we lose you? What happened? I'm here. I just muted myself. Yes, sister. Mr. Zulu, call Scotty. Tell him to get this man out of here. Wait a minute, Mr. Zulu. Before you touch that dial, answer me this question. Who does the laundry around here? Mr. Zulu. Well, you call me Buddhahead and Pieface in front of everybody. I've been in space all this time, and I haven't had one woman yet. You even take the ugly ones, Captain. It's true, they never let Harry Kim on Voyager get any play either. I'm just saying. My loins are about to explode. I want to do the nasty. That's right, rise above. I would end that there, but uh, that was a good suggestion, Jason. I appreciate that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to log us off now. Please join us. We're going to do this every day after a Bad Faith episode drops. We drop episodes on Mondays and Thursdays. To hear our Monday premium episodes, you subscribe at patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast. For $5 a month, you get access to four additional podcasts every month, plus our back catalog, which is pretty large at this point. Don't forget to t- check out T over at Champagne Sharks. Truly one of my top favorite pop culture podcasts and one of the few things I continue to listen to on a regular basis. Um, And as I said earlier, thank you for joining in, make a highlight and keep the faith.